Welcome to the What's Your Weird Story podcast. Everyone has at least one good story. And some of us have stories that are just to the left of normal. We're interested in the ones that push the boundaries of what we can perceive. Stories that defy explanations. Stories with an air of mystery. Stories we might not share. For fear of being thought of differently. But don't worry. We're all friends here. So... What's your weird story? Hello, Weirdsville! It's time once again for the What's Your Weird Story podcast. Your weekly podcast of choice, we hope. Uh, top choice is what should, we're, we're, we're top shelf for our type of podcast that we do. Of all the podcasts that we do, my co-host Barry Johnson and I, Adam Beebe, of all the podcasts we do, this is the top shelf one. And you, that shows that you, our listeners, have refined taste in podcast listening, and your habits reflect on what a truly cultured uh, individual you are. But uh, enough buttering you up. Um, I'll butter up my co-host Barry. How are you, sir? I'm great, man. I'm really good. That was uh, that was great. That was uh, I feel I feel more cultured. I feel uh, this sort of sense of pride um, with that wonderful introduction. Yes. Yeah, we're not talking to a lot of uh, pigs and lip swine and, li- and lipstick here, <laughs> um, unless you know, unless you're into that. Hey, man, that's cool. That's you cool. Know, totally cool. We, we and if you got a story about that, you know, we, we want to hear it because that's what we're all about. We're all about hearing your stories, your weird, unusual stories, your funny, your epic, your awesome stories. And uh, we've got an awesome guest today, and he's got a really incredible story. And um, Barry, uh, last night, as I was drifting, well, as I was attempting to drift off to sleep because uh-huh. I had terrible insomnia and I was up till past six in the morning. Oh, dang. Yeah, quite quite wonderful. Um, but I remembered the story, and I think that you'll get a kick out of it. Do you remember? I believe it was. It was either our. It was. I think it was towards the end of our sophomore year. It could have been our junior year. Okay. But uh, I don't know if you were there. At the incident when it happened, okay, but uh, there was a, there was a slingshot. Uh, w- it was a water balloon. Yeah, slingshot. yeah, yeah, yeah. The big one, the big one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there was a chunk of asphalt. Okay. Do you remember this story? I don't. I don't know. Keep going. I okay, do remember so the slingshot. It was uh, the 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 kids that were in it. I believe they were in. Uh, they were either coming back from weightlifting or. Uh, industrial design, which was Coach Van Cleve's class, and that was out in the building that yeah. had field so, house. Yeah, the field house by the field house. Yeah. yeah. So it was a ways. It was a little, a little bit of walk from yeah, the school. Yeah. You mm-hmm. had to go through the parking lot, and our, we had that crappy parking lot that was just asphalt and rocks. Yep. Yep. And uh, this is about the time that those big ass two man, three man actually three man, yeah, uh, water balloon cannon launchers you know catapults slingshots yeah they were surgical tubing with a pocket in the middle yeah. and t- so one guy would get 
on one side and the other guy on the other side and then the guy in the middle that would be responsible for loading yeah. the thing in the middle and then he would go and just stretch as far back as he could yeah and and yeah so it was we found it quite entertaining oh yeah absolutely again this is pre-internet day so you know yeah. this was fantastic yeah. stuff we didn't have jackass no we were we lived it <laughs> yeah. yeah we were our own jackass that's right it was a three-man operation, but one could, if one figured it out, do it themselves. Where you, if you could have the strength and the agility, and uh, could figure out how to load a water balloon, yeah, and or you know maybe an egg or something like that yeah. into the, and then hold it up, yeah, yeah, and have the strength, you know, and yeah. then like pull it down with your foot, and then let go and sling it out. Yeah. Typically that wasn't a very good idea. Yeah. So, uh, it was, Oh, I do remember this. Yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. 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 Day, uh, uh, you know, at between classes or just uh, before class transition, the bell ring, a group of boys walking back across the practice field to get just at the cusp of our parking lot when they were just all discussing and playing around with this uh, slingshot. Of course, you know, Coach Van Cleve was one of the younger coaches, teachers at that time. So yeah. he was, you know, he was in that, into it and stuff and super laid back about everything, really. And so one of the boys, um, Chip, we won't give his full name, um, but we'll call him Chip. Um, just for some anonymity, but of course, everybody that grew up with this knows exactly what I'm talking about. Because there's only one chip in our hometown. But anyway, Chip uh, <laughs> decided that he could do this slingshot single-handedly. Yeah, single-handedly oh, wow. on his own. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, now, and Chip was, you know, so he was actually he wasn't an athlete. He didn't play any sports, but he was very strong. He was, yeah, very. You know, yeah. he was he was athletic, yeah. very athletic. Yeah, yeah. He didn't play any sports. I think you know, he, so he worked out. I think. Yeah. But yeah, um, so Chip decides that he could do this on his own, and so he gets himself a chunk of asphalt that is uh, roughly the size of. I'd say like a softball, I believe, uh-huh. you know, yeah. that big, not yeah. necessarily in that shape, but yeah. that, that big. Yeah, so yeah, maybe, yeah. you know, so he gets it. Good size. And everybody's yeah. like, Chip, you can't do this. You, you can't do this. You can't do this. And he's like, oh, yeah, I can't. I can't. I can't. So he puts his, puts the the rock, the chunk of asphalt down into the net. <laughs> and he puts his foot. On in the rung that you know you're that you're supposed to pull with yeah, your hands. Yeah, yeah, the handle. So then yeah. he gets his arms up and he like oh, man. stretches one into place and then he stretches the other over his head into place and he's locking there and he's like starting to shake a little bit, starting to shake a little bit, and everybody's like, "Oh, Chip, you can't do this." He's like, "I can do it, I can do it, I can do it." He's like, "Getting through," and then all of a sudden, his left arm buckles. And all of a sudden, his right arm buckles, and he comes down, and they just kind of they just come down, and he looks down, and the the slingshot still has enough energy in it that it just goes, it just really it releases, yeah, and it carries the chunk of asphalt at un unimaginable speed from the ground up, you know, about four or five feet straight 
into Chip's forehead as he's looking down. Yeah. And just shatters. Exploded. Yeah, I remember that. The, yeah. And, of course, everybody laughed and laughed and laughed. And Chip was a bloody mess. And they had a loading <laughs> sheet in the back. Somebody dropped. Uh, less than a block to the emergency so room. So funny. It was right across, or hospital was right across from our high school. So yeah. You know, I can't remember if I actually saw it happen, but I know that I was around it. Yeah. I know that oh, I was somewhere in the vicinity. It was big talk for quite oh, a while, dude. And he had, um, he had, he had stitches on his forehead. Amazing. And I wonder if he's still got a scar. I bet he does, man. I bet he does. <laughs> That's hilarious, man. I mean, uh, that's what know. that's what young boys do when that's they're right. when they're bored and yes, and they have too many toys at their at yes. their uh, disposal, man. Wow. And also to try to prove themselves for yeah, no yeah, reason, yeah yeah you know? yeah for no reason. Just watch this, yeah. You know? And we all and know the would ma- graduate to hold my beer <laughs> yeah. and then you know exactly. So, I wonder if uh, you know if he had a if that day. I wonder what happened in his brain if he had an ear death experience yeah experience yeah 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 if, uh, or what happened <laughs> i know that he got in a lot of trouble at home yeah and uh, and at school because of course slingshots of any variety were banned after that <laughs> yep absolutely man that's hilarious oh that's a great story and speaking of great stories we got a great one coming up man we've got a a guest that has come on he's a best-selling author um, he's got um, a few books out, and uh, and he's got a wild story. And uh, so, yeah, we brought our friend Kellen on, and he has really an amazing story. Yes. Speaking of, uh, well, speaking of seeing God and near-death experiences, uh, Kellen, thank you so very much for joining us. I should say, firstly, uh, joining us from Alberta, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, I believe that's correct, uh, is Kellen. Kellen, thank you for joining us. What's your weird story? Well, thanks for having me. And I, um, you know, this story that I'm going to share with you is is 100% real, true, and certainly not something I ever would have expected. I, I spent 30 years from 1977 to 2007 working in energy, supervising, managing engineers. I was a C-suite officer, big dog chief, this, that, and the other, and left that business in 2007, started a coaching business, changed a bunch of stuff about my life and all that stuff. And that is available in another in a book that I wrote called Tightrope of Depression. It's quite a interesting and big deal change story, but that's not what we're talking about today. In 2018, 10 mm-hmm. years after that life-changing divine intervention that got me out of one career and completely into another, my wife and I went on a cruise. And though I had made ridiculous amounts of money, I'd never been on a cruise before. I don't know why, neither had she. So we went on a cruise of the Baltic Sea. Now, I didn't really know where the Baltic Sea was. And I certainly didn't know it ran east and west. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it goes to St. Petersburg and Helsinki and Tallinn, Estonia, the Baltic states, you know. So it, that's where it is. And it was a 10-day uh, ship, cruise, and etc. And it was all fun. We had a great time. At the end, uh, we had a couple of days in Oslo before we came home. <clears throat> I got sick in Oslo, 
And I had a fever, and it was not fun, but I walked around the first day carrying the backpack. And my wife is a seasoned European traveler. I'm not. Mm -hmm. But I was carrying the backpack and hauling around the souvenirs and all that jazz. So the second day in Oslo, I was really, really sick. And we went to Amsterdam and then came home and got home Tuesday night to Edmonton. And today, if I was as sick as I was on the flight, they would throw you out the window because of COVID and everything. But in those days, having a fever was not the end of the world. And so I didn't have to ride on the wing. (laughs) <laughs> but anyway, um, we got home on Tuesday, and I figured this is just a really, really bad flu, and I'd had just terrible fevers the night before, and that continued Wednesday, Thursday. And by Friday, which was the fifth day of the illness, I figured this is not going away. I better go into the clinic. In Canada, they have walk-in clinics where you start your medical journey, whatever's going on, unless you're bleeding to death. But anyway, I went into my walk-in clinic that I'd been to many times, local one and stuff, and they wouldn't let me in. Uh, They took one look at me at the door and said, yeah, you can't come in here, number one. And number two, there's nothing we can do for you. Go to the university emergency room down the street. So beat it. And it was worse than that because I I, I didn't even get out of the car. There was a sign on the wall inside that said, you know, if you have a cough and stuff, tell the nurse before you come in, etc. So I sent Joy, my wife's name's Joy, I sent her in to get the nurse to come out to say something because I did have a cough and everything. And she's the one that told me. And in the meantime, I coughed, you know, and coughed up some phlegm and, and spit it on the, the parking lot. I mean, we're talking asphalt, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And when she got out there, she looked at me and said, you can't come in here, go straight to ER. And then she looked down and she saw this phlegm that I'd spit on the sidewalk. She said, did did you spit that there? And I said, yeah. She said, don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because she had an objection to spitting on the sidewalk. She looked at it like it was poison from Mars. Right. So anyway, wow. I went to the ER and in the emergency room, you know, depending on how busy it is and what's going on, you expect to spend an hour or maybe two, three waiting, depending Mm -hmm. on all that stuff. Well, I got in there and in 10 minutes, I was in a private room. I didn't even know they had private rooms in the emergency room. Every ER I've ever been in, they've got those little curtains, right? Mm -hmm. With the the little stretchers. I was in a private room with the door. Mm. And in 10 more minutes, a doctor was coming in to see me, and they immediately started doing tests. And within an hour, they said, we're going to admit you to the hospital. There's no question about that. We just don't know what is wrong with you. Oh, so, God. And I was going downhill fast. I was I was feeling awful and <clears throat> had waited too long. But this was the fifth day of the illness, Friday afternoon. Finally, 5 or 6 o'clock, I sent Joy home because we had dogs and cats and mm-hmm. You know, they're got to go take care of them. And I said, besides that, they're going to admit me here. So just come back tomorrow morning and let's see what's going on. So um, they came back later and said, yeah, we've we found a place. But we have a at a minimum, you have horrifying pneumonia in both lungs. But that's not all. Something else is wrong. We don't know what it is yet. Then they took me upstairs to the room and then they came in and said, yeah, uh, we're probably actually going to have to move you to the intensive care unit. Cool. Oh, okay. And then they came back in an hour. Yeah, I think we're also going to put you in biological isolation. Uh, I don't know if you know what bioisolation is, but if you've seen a movie where they have hazmat four labs with 
airlock doors and stuff. Okay, there was a double airlock door to get into where I was. Oh, my God. Bio-isolation like I was the fungus from Mars. So, and and then they came then and said, um, we're going to put you in biological isolation. And they came back one more time and said, ask you the question you never want to hear. They said, uh, do we have permission to intubate you and do anything we need to do to preserve your life? Mm, wow. And I said, what? And then I went into... A meditation. They left. I said yes, terrified, but I said yes. And I went into meditation, and I've been a long-time practitioner of meditation since my teens, just because I started then when I was mm -hmm. starting with martial arts. Uh, after I was in meditation for about an hour, I could actually feel my body and my spirit separating. Oh. So I knew I was dying. So I, this was late now, Friday night, 10 or 11, and I could barely operate my phone, but I took my phone and I sent Joy a text, and it had three lines. The first line was ICU. The second line said isolation slash intubation. And the third line said, I may be dying. Oh, my God. She didn't see that because she was asleep. And about 2.30 or 3 in the morning, she got the call from the hospital, you never want to get. And she woke, you know, answered the phone. <clears throat> what? And she, the nurse said, uh, are you coming? And she said, what? And then she saw my text. So sometime that night, my heart stopped and I died. Wow. And when that happened, I uh, came and I was, in, I was in a coma for weeks after that, two and a half or three weeks. But anyway, when that happened, I came to spiritually or energetically, whatever you mm -hmm. want to call that. I was in a gray room. And I was horizontal like I was on the stretcher in the isolation room. and But I could see over my left shoulder a doorway. Mm -hmm. It didn't have a door in it, but it was a doorway. And for some reason, I couldn't see how big the room was. The floors were gray. The ceiling was gray. The floor was gray. And it was that kind of photo card gray. Mm -hmm. Just very soft gray. But I could see this door over there. And I could see on the other side of the doorway, it was light. It was white. It wasn't streaming through. It was gray on my side and white on that side. And I wanted to be at the door. So then I was suddenly at the door and I was leaning on the door jam on my right shoulder. And across the door, right there on the other door jam, facing, leaning on his right shoulder, there was someone on the white side looking at me. And we stood there for a minute and then he looked at me and he said, do you want to come home? And uh, in a millionth of a second, you knew who you were talking to, what was going on, where you were, and what the question meant. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, I, I, I hyperventilated. <laughs> it's like, okay, do I want to come home? Wow. And there was no expectation of what the answer should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just, it just was in the air. And in the coaching world, when you're coaching people, they have a phrase called holding space. And that's kind of a woo-woo phrase, but it means creating a safe place for there to be consideration where you can, you know, mm -hmm. safe place. Well, in all the places and spaces I've ever been, there's never been any space being held like the space that sat there around that question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I knew, I knew it needed an answer 
but there was no pressure. There was no expectation of time or anything else. Do you want to come home? So we talked about it for a while, about what I'd been doing since the huge change that was now 10 years, because it happened in 2008, this is 2018. So I'd been, my life had been changed. <clears throat> I was working as a coach and doing well and you know, feeling good about what I was doing, et cetera, et cetera. And I, we talked for a while and finally I just said, well, I just, I'm not done. Okay. So that was the end of that first of three conversations. Wow. I'm quite certain that it was at that moment that they were able to restart my heart. And um, I stayed here. The next day, uh, and again, like I said, I was in a coma for weeks. But the next day, and I don't know, people have asked, well, how did you know it was the next day? I don't know. It was the next day, okay? Yeah, right, yeah, right. You yeah. know, the next day, I'm back at the door. Same place, same situation. And the subject of the previous day, which was coming home or not, didn't come up. Um, it was, okay, you're staying. So what are you going to do? So then we started talking about the coaching practice and my work with people. And my work has always been to help them get past barriers and obstacles, the stories we tell ourselves, the I can't, not good enough, all the mm -hmm. things that keep us from doing what we could do with our lives. Mm -hmm. And then I had an, a really intense experience. I don't know if you've had, if you've ever seen the movie Contact with Jodie Foster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, there was a in a period during this experience that was like that. It was so intense and overwhelming with information and input and what was going on. I felt like if I hadn't been in some kind of a protective bubble, I would have been incinerated. But somehow I was able to be in that place and see and understand lots of stuff that about everything. And after a time in that place, I was I was back and we're at the door and four things. I took away four absolute important truths. And mm -hmm. number one is that every one of us is a divine intentional creation. There's no accident. Mm -hmm. We're all here absolutely divinely and intentionally created. Okay, cool. Number two was every single one of us has been blessed and given with gifts, with talents, with things that we were given to have as part of this experience. Number three was <clears throat> we each also have a purpose and mission that we not only agreed to, but we were stoked about mm. before we came here. We were excited, we agreed. And number four, all the help that we need is available to us from both sides of that door. Wow. So I said, <clears throat> in a situation where you're having a conversation with someone and they tell you a bunch of stuff, you might say, well, if that's true, but there you don't say if. So I said, since that's true, why do we settle for crumbs? By and large, why do we settle for crumbs? Some mm -hmm. tiny fraction of what's possible for us to achieve, to do, to be. And I don't know if in the economy of heaven, brevity is a virtue, but the answer was four words. He looked at me and he said, because you don't believe. Hmm. 
And I thought, holy crap. Okay. And I, and I you know, it hit me like, duh, right? Okay, we don't. Mm -hmm. So then I said, okay, what can I do? My work, as I stay here to do this work as a coach, a life coach, performance coach, an excellence coach, whatever you want to call it, what can I do about that? Oh, okay, glad you asked. So then what came was an entire framework about how to change our beliefs, especially ones that we've had since we were young that are deep woven into our DNA, the mm. things we believe about what we can do and what we can't do and what we're worth and who we are and all that crap. And <clears throat> it had, the whole framework that, that he gave had a name and it, I called it the book of context. So I wrote one book called Meeting God at the Door, Conversations, Choices, and Commitments mm -hmm. of a Near-Death Experience. And that contained that first conversation and more about what I just said, and then a third conversation, which I'll tell you about in a minute. Then I wrote a companion book called The Book of Context, which contained this whole framework about how to change beliefs. Mm -hmm. Right? And <clears throat> so that was incredible and i i give this a name i call it our context straitjacket because it's like we live in a we live in a straitjacket that is our beliefs our definitions our experiences our expectations and perceptions mm -hmm. i call that your b deep it's an acronym from those words and it literally forms a straitjacket that limits what we can do right. and what we'll try and so I, I came back now the third day, and I'm just like super excited. I'm buzzing. I've been repeating in my mind all this stuff and this framework and everything I knew. I'm buzzing about this. I'm just excited as anything. <clears throat> and I'm back there at the third, third day, and it was just one question again. He looked at me and he said, are you sure? And I started to hyperventilate again. It's like, what do you mean? Am I sure? Am I stupid? Did I miss something? Am I biting off more than I can chew? What do you mean? Am I sure? Yeah. <laughs> like, holy crap. Yeah. And so we talked about it from every possible angle. Do I get know what I'm getting into? Can I do this? Is it a, my over my pay grade? Like what? Right. And finally, at the end, I said, okay, I'm sure. And Okay. And nothing was said, but the conversation ended with the finality that I knew we were done. And then some 14, 15 days later, I came out of the coma. And they told me then, and I, in a minute I came out, I was just blubbering to everybody that would listen about the book of context and this, all this stuff, was talking right. about all this stuff. And I assumed that they thought I was insane, and they didn't. Some other stuff happened. But anyway, um, I came out of that a, a few weeks later, and they told me that finally by Monday night after I'd come in on Friday, which was day eight of my illness, they figured out what I had. And what I had was a necrotizing MRSA, uh, which is a, 
a bacterial resistant superbug. Wow. Yeah. It's very difficult to get, but it was in both lungs and in my bloodstream. Jeez. And it was so aggressive that the knee, the tubes they had in one side of my neck, they couldn't, after a while, they couldn't get the bacteria count to go down and they couldn't figure out why. And it was because the bacteria culture started growing in the tube. So oh they had to God. pull this whole tube out and oh put it in the other side of my neck. Damn. Yeah. So Damn. that was, and they also told me that what I had, and we talked mortality rates with COVID of two to 3%. Told me the ten-day mortality rate of what you had was a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean. So of course you died. Yeah. yeah. Like what else would you do? Yeah. It's a fatal illness. Wow. How many? So that's, how many days into this before you got to the hospital? Like. Well, I got sick on Monday, and I didn't go to the hospital till day five, Friday. Oh, man. And they pumped, they immediately, well, I went, I did, a, you know, the crash cart thing. After I sent that text to Joy, I, you know, code green, blue, black, red, orange, whatever it is, flatline, take them to the, to the limit, to the room. And they tubed me up and filled me with every antibiotic known to man. And I didn't know this, but they have something that in the hospital they call the antibiotic of last resort. I don't. I didn't know such a thing, but they have that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's, it is the last one. Just like seriously, seriously uh, um, potent. Yeah, you can look that up. The antibiotic last resort, and I'll tell you what the name of it is. Okay. But anyway, okay. Um, you know, they immediately hooked me up to everything known to man, and they didn't know what I had till the end of day eight. They finally figured out what it was. So that was Monday night, and that's when they figured out what I had. And but, I I was dead long before that, and that was day three of the conversations. Oh my oh, lord, man! And the girl, the babysitter girl, she picked up the phone, and there was a policeman on the other side, and he said, "We've tracked the phone call, and it's coming from inside the house." Whoa. I love those urban legend stories. Dude, I do too. And you remember the one where the girl, it's always the babysitter or it's the kids making out in Lover's Lane. But there's the one where the girl comes up and she finds the kids are watching TV and she turns them around and their face has SpaghettiOs. Oh, man. Or the hook guy. Remember the hook guy? The hook was hanging from the rear view mirror. Yeah. Yeah. So if you got a story that is similar to any of those awesome urban legends, we want to hear it. Because, you know, those urban legends, man, they started off as somebody's true life weird story. It's got to be true somewhere. How did they bring you back? Like, what was the process of the, of the do, on the doctor's side? Um, I don't know. Okay. Joy, Joy hadn't gotten to the hospital yet. Okay. And we don't know. I don't know. Yeah. They told. They said my heart had stopped, and they did whatever you yeah. see them do. Right. I, I'm sure they did the dance and did the whole yeah thing that they do to bring somebody back to life. The clear start and somebody, CPR I'm sure and sure all of that. Yeah. However long it took, it took however long that first conversation was. How how were you able to stay lucid in in I mean I think that when I think of death I think 
I, I don't know what I think of. I think of like you're 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 transitioning into this thing, but it's like how conscious are you? And it sounds like you were still conscious and like able to make decisions and think for yourself. Well, and, so if you know, we know when we sit quietly by ourselves that the the energetic center of our body, you call it a spirit, energetic thing. We know that came from somewhere. Mm-hmm. We know that it isn't the body. Okay, mm-hmm. and the body's going to die, and that thing's going to go somewhere. So that thing it was still completely conscious and completely aware of what was going on and having these detailed and long and lengthy conversations at the door between life and death and having all these experiences. And my body was laying there at, at one time dead, and then the second and third day on life support, full stuffed full of tubes and, you know, with breathing machines and everything else keeping the body alive, but the spirit was completely lucid and having these three conversations and then was waiting in the coma till they got my body to a place where I, I could physically wake up, which was a couple weeks later. Sure. Wow. Man. <laughs> I mean, just even it, 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 the story is remarkable. Even if you take out even what you experienced, you know, your, what your spiritual side experience, it just the story of you, being that sick and dealing with that illness, which is like again amazing in itself that you survived that, it's jaw dropping. And but then you add you you have your other side to the story, which is just like I mean, this is one of the I can say this. This is one of the episodes that Barry and I have been probably the most quiet one during the storytelling. Because we're just absorbing all of these things it's, that you're talking about. It's, it's riveting. Fasting. Yeah. 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 Usually, well, let's like, oh, be boss. really clear. <laughs> I, there's nothing special about me. I had the opportunity. What What you don't know is 10 years earlier, when I was in 2007, I was a big dog executive. I was making so much money that my $3,000 a week cocaine addiction was lunch money. And I was a big dog. I'd been in and out of rehab. I'd been married and divorced three times. It was movie stuff stuff where on one side it looks like whoa look at that guy and then behind the scenes it's like holy crap look at that guy you know yeah and that was what i was rescued from in 2007 and set on a path to do something completely different so 10 years in this was I consider this a blessing and a cherry on top to have an experience this powerful, this precious, this sacred, to reaffirm what I'm about and what I'm doing. And I I treat it with the most sacred nature I possibly can. Yes, I wrote a book about it, but the book wasn't in any way meant to sensationalize or to do anything. Mm-hmm. And I know there's nothing special about me any more than anyone else, but it's just to let everyone know how important each individual is. Sure. Would you say that you were a, uh, I mean, I know that you, you talked about your meditation and, um, and martial arts practice. Would you consider yourself to be, like before this happened, a, a spiritual person? Or was that something that didn't really have a lot to do with your life at that time? Well, we have to back up a few years. I was raised in a fanatic religious home, and the discipline that I got then today would be felony child abuse, Mm, and I would have been removed from the home. And so 
I grew up knowing for sure that I was no good. I was fundamentally flawed and never would be. And that could drive a person away from religion, God, and everything else, but it didn't. I knew there was something. I just knew that what I had experienced was all screwed up. And so I was not I was not practicing in any way, shape, or form. And I was a drug addict and a big dog filled with myself, too important to be in the same room with anybody else, idiot. But after the thing that happened in 2007, which gave me the chance to change my life completely, which I did, then I became spiritual. And so for the 10 years preceding this event, I was working on that connection and working from that place. But for the decades before, it was kind of like, yeah, okay. Do you think you would have handled it differently before that? Like in your in your partying days, um you know, pedal to the metal days, would you have made the choice to want to stick around if po- if that question was posed? Um, you know, I was always terrified of the idea to meet the divine. When I had the divine intervention in 2007, 10 years earlier, that invited me to change, it was completely different. I wasn't in a hospital. I got home from work. I had contracts. I was making so much money that my 3000 bucks a week was lunch money. I told you that. And I, I got home from work on a Friday night. I had four teenage kids living with me. I was a single dad for the third time and I was ready to go party for the weekend. And I, I, on Friday night I was getting ready to go out and I just had this urge to turn on the television. Now that doesn't sound like anything except I didn't watch TV and I didn't even know how to turn my set on. Mm-hmm. I'd had the biggest, coolest stuff you could buy installed because that's what you buy when you make all this money, right? Yeah. And somebody from the electronics store can put all this crap in, but I realized I didn't know how to turn it on. So I'd ask one of my kids, how do you turn this on? And my 16 year old daughter turned it on and threw the remote at me and, you know, idiot and walked out of the room. (laughs) And it, it landed, it landed on a program, which I'd never heard of, but I'd never heard of anything because I didn't watch TV. And the name of the program was intervention. Oh yeah. Which is a reality TV show about families who stage interventions for busted relatives. I'd never heard of it. Now get this, the protagonist, Protagonist was a high-ranking executive with a cocaine problem. Wow. So I watched about 10 minutes of this and said, I'm not watching this crap. Turned it off, walked around the house for another 10, 15 minutes, did some other stuff, and then was getting ready to go out. And before I left, I just had to turn the TV back on. Okay, fine. So I did. And the program started over at the beginning. And no, I don't have a DVR. And no, it wasn't on the schedule. And no, it can't do that. Right. (laughs) But it did. So I watched the program. It didn't go well. The guy refused all the help, yelled at his relatives, stomped out, blah, blah, blah. But it scared me bad enough that I went to bed instead of going out to party. Wow. When I went to bed, I went to hell. What I mean by that is I lived a time where I watched the whole parade of my life from young to now, not in an accusing negative way, but just a drama unfold. And I felt more, it was really focused on the suffering that both I had endured and inflicted Mm -hmm. in the life. And it was, it's the most intense pain I've ever felt. And after some period of time, I heard a voice that said, it is enough. And I woke up and it was Saturday afternoon at five o'clock. So 18 hours, 17 and a half, 18 hours, I'd been somewhere having this experience. And I woke up and I realized I'd been invited to change. Wow. 
So that w- that happened 10 years earlier, and I changed. Right. I went straight up cold turkey, never touched it again. Wow. That's it. That's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. What was your family's um, reaction to what you were talking about when you got out of the coma and you came to, and then you had this epiphany, you had these, you know, this interaction with this, you know, with the other side, as it were, was it taken seriously or were they kind of, okay, maybe he's kind of not all there yet. What was the, what was their reaction? Well, sadly, my family had sort of distanced themselves from me completely during the bad days. And so I, when I was dying in the hospital, I have 10 children, only two of the 10 even came. And uh, no one disbelieved. My brother and sister came to see me after I got out of the hospital, out of the coma. Uh, They came to see me and I told them the story and they did not believe me. They didn't say anything. It was like, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't really have, um, I, I don't hold any negativity. That's all long since gone from me. But my family, I have them, and some of the kids, some of my 10 kids still don't talk to me even after 10 years straight up doing everything I can to do good in the world. Yeah. But I don't let that worry me anymore. Because there's actually more to this story. Because I didn't have any support, and all those that ought to be happy that I got stone cold sober didn't couldn't care less. And this is another illustration of how important each of us are. Two weeks after that experience where it is enough, I realized I have to quit this job. I have to get out of this industry. I have to walk away from all this and do something different. So that got me sober, but nothing did anything about the depression that I had been struggling with for 40 years. I'd never talked to a soul. I'd never gotten help. All I'd been doing is going in and out of relationships, creating big money because I knew how to do that, but ruining my life. So two weeks later, uh, I hadn't left the contracts I had yet. I was getting ready to. I got. I had tickets to a concert. Now, because of the position I had, I got free tickets, free, free stuff all the time. Think of a CEO that gets free stuff. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Not, not quite bribes, but you know what I mean. Yeah, free yeah, this, yeah, free that. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. So I had two free tickets to a concert that was, if you know classical music, it was to for Yo-Yo Ma, who's. Oh, wow. Yeah, man. If you know who he is, then you do, and it's like, oh, okay. So it's two free yeah. tickets and great seats to the premier venue in town. But I was single again for the third time, and I didn't want to waste this other ticket. So I said to the groups that I managed, does anybody like classical music? And some lady in one of the groups said, well, I do. And I looked at her, and I said, well, have I ever given you anything before? She said, no. And I said, okay, fine. Here, see you there. So I gave her the ticket, and I met her at the venue. And halfway through the show, remember, now I'm stone cold sober for two weeks. Halfway through the show, I had this feeling come over me that I recognized from two weeks earlier, and a voice in my head said, you need to marry this woman. And I said, you're insane. Um, (laughs) This is not happening. I've screwed that up three times, plus some other half-assed attempts in between. It's not happening. Later that night, backstage, and say we're backstage passes, of course, and came back and said, comma, and you need to tell her tonight. And I argued like mad because, you know, she could sue me. She could call a cop. She could do whatever, right? Yeah. And you don't win those arguments. So I did, and it went about like you'd expect it. Are you crazy? What are you <laughs> yeah. talking about? I mean, I didn't know her that well, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Right, yeah. Okay, fine. So um, 
Within two weeks, she had her own set of experiences, and she resigned from a very good career that she had. And we walked off into the sunset together, and we just celebrated our 14th anniversary. And her name is Joy. Like, you can't make this stuff up. And that angel was sent to help me with the depression part. Because I, while I was sober, I had no idea how to be a person. I had no idea how to relate to anyone. I hadn't known anything except conditional love in my whole life. I didn't know how to tell the truth. I was a pathological liar. I did whatever I needed to get by. You know what I mean? And yeah. so it was yeah. like, that's the other half. Oh, yeah. Wow. That is a, wow. wow. That's remarkable, man. It really is like I think it's it can't be overstated what a what a good partner in life can do for you, man. It I, I I'm a firm believer in that, and um, you know, for all of the folks out there that are trying to deal with being alone, I get it uh, for sure, and it's it's tough. Um, but uh, sometimes you got to take a leap of faith, like you did in that situation, and realize what you've got. And even though you didn't know her for whatever reason. The thing, uh, the spirit or whatever around you told you, you know, this is the way that you need to to uh, proceed. Uh, that's powerful, man. That's powerful. And, well, uh, I've asked her a million times, like, what on earth were you thinking? Yeah, no shit. I said, everybody <laughs> in the office knew I was a drug addict. They didn't know, but they knew, right? Rumors yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. So they're like, I said, what possessed you to walk away from your career? She was a project manager and she had many years in to walk away from that career and walk off into the sunset with a drug addict. Like, what were you thinking? And she said, you know, I don't know, except I knew to the core of my soul it was the right thing to do. Wow. Wow. She saw something. She saw something. So then this event that took place 10 years later, yeah. when, he di- when he died, was basically kind of like a uh, a job performance evaluation. It was a cherry on top <laughs> of the whole thing. I mean, I realize how crazy all this stuff sounds. The reason I tell this story and it is, is not for people to say, oh, you're crazy or whatever, but it's so that people can understand how important each one of us is. I'm no more important than anybody else. And if what I, what, what I knew is if God's willing to go to this length to rescue my sorry ass, then every single person is worth whatever it takes yeah. to to give them the opportunity to come home. That's amazing, man. You know, that's amazing. I think that we lose sight in that, especially in the we talk about this quite a bit on this podcast. And it, for all the things that we have today with technology and um, you know, the the there's been a big movement in the last you know fifteen, ten, fifteen years with the with a sort of an atheist uh, movement or ideology. Uh, we try to separate ourselves from uh, some sort of a creator or some, or whatever you want to call it. Um, we we need we need these stories and we need people um, with with your uh, situation to to talk about these things because this is rare. I mean, I I have. I've heard about people having, you know, death experiences and things like that, but um, I've actually, I've never talked to anybody mm-hmm. that has had one, certainly for our podcast. And we're, 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 we're at a year number. We're coming up on year number four this year. Um, this is the first man. And, and, yeah. um, and it's a compelling story and it's Absolutely. a, it's a beautiful story and it's a beautiful message, man. Well, uh, it's uh, every word of it's true. And the reason that it matters is because it's never, I was 52 
when the 10 year ago thing happened. I was, mm-hmm. you know, in 19, 2018, I was 62 and a half. So it's never too late. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've been through. I don't, be, I don't care who's done what to who. It's never, ever too late to matter and to have a big impact if you yeah. choose to surrender. And I don't mean give up. Yeah. But surrender to that feeling that we all have sometimes that there's something calling us to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. Amazing. So you mentioned you wrote some books. Um, we want to make sure we get those. You know, we you get to tell to tell the pe- tell the people how to you know get a hold of those and whatnot. So, you know what's fun when you have a name like Kellen Flukiger, all I have to ask you guys to do is to spell it right, because if you put that name in on Google, there's thousands of hits because of my high profile executive career. Mm-hmm. There's thousands of hits because of my YouTube channel and my coaching business. If you Amazon me, there's books and music that I've done. I, I need social media. I don't I'm not on all of them, but LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. I'm really easy to find. So anybody that says I can't find you is lying. <laughs> or they're not looking, or you guys didn't spell my name right. <laughs> I was going to ask for you. For the record, yeah, how for you the record it's F-L-U-C-K-I-G-E-R, and then Correct. Uh, Kellen is K-E-L-L-A-N. Kellen Flukiger. There's only two out of eight billion people, and the <laughs> other one is my oldest son. There you go. <laughs> That's amazing. Um where are you so at? if you want the books, yeah. uh, they're on Amazon. Meeting yeah. God at the Door, Great. Conversation, Choices, and Commitments of a Near-Death Experience, The Book of Context, Tightrope of Depression, My Journey from Darkness, Despair, and Death to Light, Love, and Life. I've written some business books. I've written 15 books since that first experience in wow. 2007. I have seven more underway, Dang. but wow. I only do one thing. From morning to night, every breath I draw, my mission is to help 10 million people discover, develop, and serve with their divine gifts. And whether I'm in the studio singing, making music, writing books, coaching clients, or talking to beautiful people who are doing good like you guys are, that's the only thing I do all day, every day, period. Fantastic. That's awesome. Fantastic. Man, we can't uh, tell you how much we appreciate you coming on and sharing your story it's uh yeah. it's riveting and i know our listeners are gonna just love this and absolutely you know absolutely um thank you for taking time out to uh to hang out with us and, and tell you tell us your story not only are you welcome but i want to honor you guys because it takes a lot of effort it takes some work to do things podcasts you know it's not a big business endeavor I have a podcast, too, that I started at the beginning of the pandemic. It's a labor of love. Your labor of love is something to help people, tell them, entertain them, anything. And so I just I have to honor anyone who is busy trying to do good to help people lift their spirits, lift their hearts, reach up, do better, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to thank you guys and honor your effort. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, man. And we'd love to have you come back. You get you get the new book out. Please come back and and yep. talk to us more. You're you're a fascinating and uh and and compelling individual. Yes.
Okay, well, I just finished a book that'll be out in about March called Forgiveness, cool. A Journey of Courage to a Place of Freedom and Power, cool. and that should be out in about March. Fantastic. Great, man. Thanks. Right, well, thank you again, man. We appreciate it. Yes. Yeah, it was okay. fantastic. Yeah, Amazing. great talking to you. Yeah. Oh, man. So good. What a great thank story. You. What a great story, man. I mean... You had me uh, on the hook, man, and it was uh, yeah, it was too. really it was great, man. I, I didn't want to I didn't want to screw up the flow of it, so I think that's yeah. you know why we just sat here and listened for the first you know. It's just a great story, a great story, man. Well, thank you, and I hope that anyone uh, who hears it is is compelled to you know evaluate themselves and to ask where they can add good to the world and do good be good it's never too late and there's always opportunity and the thing that keeps us locked up is that thing i said that context straitjacket we believe we can't we believe it's too late we believe we don't have the chops we believe that something or somehow has made it so that yabbit yeah, you know yabbit yeah, i not for me yabbit yeah, yabbit yeah, yabbit yeah, yeah. yeah and it's not true yeah. Yeah. I believe it too. I believe it too. Man. I see, I, I see why you're a coach. Cause even just here chatting with you, it's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think of coaching as being in the people encouragement business mm -hmm. and with everything going on in the world, we sure as heck need it. Oh yeah. And I, I just, I love people. It's easy for me to love them. And, uh, you know, when I was in my high driving, high profile, this, that, and the other days, three piece Armani go downtown and do battle. When I was in those days, I, I was a different person. Like if you saw me 15 years ago and see me now, I'm a different person. I'm patient. I have enormous love and patience and empathy for people. And it comes from this journey that I've been on and the patience that was extended to me. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, uh, more people need to hear that. We live in a society when we're only valued by the money that we can bring in and, and financial gain and at any cost. And, um, that isn't to me, that's not our true value as people. I had enough money that I had a guy in my neighborhood tell me every time I drove by my place, he had garage envy. I had six cars. I had an H2 Hummer. I had an 850 horsepower supercar. I had two motorcycles. I was wasting as much money as I said on, on blow. And that was all whatever, whatever. And I was a miserable, wretched wreck. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I get it for sure, man. I, I, I used to tour. Um, I, I was a front of house engineer and I, I toured with bands for, you know, over, you know, the better part of 10 years and um, worked for people that I idolized and, you know, had their pictures up on my, you know, on my wall when I was a kid growing up and, and, and was miserable. I was miserable, man. I, I That taught me an important lesson. It's like, you got to do things and you got to, you got to do things in your life that are satisfying. And, um, and, and, and oftentimes those things aren't like, uh, glamorous, you know, uh, being a family man or, you know, being a good husband. Um, that's not, that's not sexy, <laughs> 
you know? Well, it ought to be. It ought to be. It ought to be our highest reward thing because it has the most impact. Nothing that I did, as big dog as I was, nothing that I did is going to have the lasting impact that being a decent parent, being there for your kids, helping them when they fall apart, all that kind of stuff, that's going to have way more impact on the world and for generations than any of the crap that you do when you're waving big money around and you're strutting around in your whatever car. Yeah. Big time, big time, big time. Okay. Callan, we'll, we'll let you go. Thank you so much again, man. This was wonderful. You're welcome. Hey everybody, you're listening to the What Your Weird Story podcast. You probably knew that already because you're listening or downloaded to the episode off of your iTunes or your Spotify or whatever place you get your podcast from. We want to thank you for listening. We also want to remind you to like us, follow us, subscribe to us, make sure that you get your new podcast episode every week. We'd also like to ask you to rate and review so that we can grow our audience and we can have more friends, we can have more stories. So thanks for listening to What's Your Weird Story. That was just a um, amazing story, you know? I mean, very just encouraging, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and Kellen, we, we, Kellen, we really appreciate you coming in and sharing that with us. Just the, the fact that what he had was so bad. Yeah. You know, like he, he shouldn't have, he should not have lived. He should have died much sooner, probably, uh, with you. Cause when your body's going through that and necrotizing, it's dying already. Mm-hmm. The organs, the flesh, or whatever it's, you know, messed up with, it's dying already on you. You're living by, but, and dying with parts of you're dying. It, it's just, that's as bad news bears, man, just yeah. all the way around. But he, you know, he, he got through it and, and boy, he, you know, that experience though is, it's, it's obviously hugely impactful. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, I mean, and he had that other weird, you know, got preemptive before this, that get sober divine inf- intervention that he called, you know, yeah. that he had. And then yeah. this, of course, just, that's a huge, yeah. He, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It is. It's inspirational. He, he, a tough dude, uh, obviously tough dude, um, yeah. to make it through that, and um, a very timely story in the in the day that we are living in now, when we've had so many people that have uh, succumbed to a, a horrible disease, to be able to walk through something like that, come out the other side with a wild story. I mean, that he had the ability to keep his mental abilities and to be able to recall that story is pretty impressive and well i mean obviously it was hugely impactful and he had things that he learned things that he was supposed to teach carry out take from that experience and and share with with the world and and he did he's Um, an he's a he's an impressive guy um yeah, yeah very energetic yep and very passionate about living his life now in a way where he's giving back. And I think it's great. So, yeah, Kellen, thanks again, man. And, and you are definitely one of those guys that um, can tell a great story 
Absolutely. You know, we've had some great stories on. We've got great stories coming up. And I'm always thankful whenever we're, fi- we're finished with a, an episode like this. And you get to talk to people that have had such incredible experiences and, and get to kind of walk a mile in their shoes for, for mm-hmm. a second, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So go check out uh, Kellen's work. You can find his books. Uh, he's got three there, you know, you have Amazon or your local bookseller. Um, but his uh, Kellen, K E L L A N, Flukager, F L U C K I G E R. And of course, it's there's a Meeting God at the Door, uh, Story Arc, and Book of Context. Uh, he also has some music up there on uh, amazon prime you can uh, you can check out um i haven't heard but uh yeah really cool really cool it was cool because before we talked to him he was he was or he was in his studio he was uh he was recording some stuff so that's really cool man we always are are uh excited when we get people on that have multiple you know creative outlets and stuff Mm -hmm. he's one of those guys for sure and he's got more books coming out too so definitely check out his stuff that's right. He's got another one coming up very soon uh, in March. All right. Well, um, it's that time once again that we start, you know, really wrapping things up. We want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening. If this is your first time with us, welcome to Weirdsville. You are officially part of the crowd, of the gang, of the, of the community. Um, there will be a uh, mixer on uh saturday evening at the weirdsville town center um check our uh email or send us an email or check with the uh the social media directors uh for more information just kidding but do send us an email at wiwspod at gmail.com if you've got a story or you want to share a story or you just want to say hi or send us an article or whatever you want to do. I, you know, Barry likes Barry and I both like to cook, you know, so uh, if you got a good family recipe or something you want to send our way, we'll take it. It's cool. You know, maybe we'll put together a Weirdsville cookbook and we'll, or something online. Now I you're talking. Know. Now you're talking, dude. Um, you can also call us on the hotline. It's 513-909-9821. You can leave a message. You can leave your story there. It's a, You can leave it three minutes installments, but you can call as many times as you, as you like. Or you can c- call to say, you know, hey, uh, get a hold of me. I want to set up a appointment interview time or something like that. Or you can contact us through our various social media places instagram twitter facebook all that stuff and we have got another really oh uh next week man (laughs) yeah if you yeah it's it's as intense as this week's if not you know i mean it's intense it's a great story as well and it is on the other side of the spectrum um and uh, Michael is joining us next week, and it is a it's a supernatural harrowing tale of of possession of demon possession, and it's not one we've heard like this before. And uh, it was it was it's one to listen to for sure. 
we're very grateful for all of our guests. We're very grateful for all of our listeners, everybody there in Weirdsville. We're grateful for all of our future storytellers and future listeners in the year 2000. Wait, that already happened. In the year 3000 or whatever, you know, future people, um, we salute you. We salute every present people. We salute you as well. Barry's giving me the wrap it up sign, so I'm just going to go ahead and do that. It's uh, time for us to leave here on the What's Your Weird Story podcast. I've been Adam Beebe. I'll still be Adam Beebe next time, but I've been Adam Beebe this time. Barry's been Barry Johnston. Yo, man. Always. Will you be Barry Johnston next time? I will be Barry Johnston next time also. That's a guarantee from both of us. All right. We love you, Weirdsville. Have a good one. Until then, be safe. Be weird. As always, if you have a weird story, we want to hear it. If you have a lot of them, we want to hear them all. We can't do this podcast without your invaluable contributions. Whether it's sharing your stories, listening, rating, and spreading the word about the podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be safe. Be weird. The stories presented on the What's Your Weird Story podcast are, to our knowledge, true experiences that our guests have had. We can't take the time to research all claims made, and besides, it's just not as fun.